when I was taking a look at this uh, gospel lesson that we had for today, I, I was the one thing that came to mind for me was how, what, what a, tra- a traveling congregation this is, you know. And I'll explain, explain that in a second. But you know, you look at it, and uh, we've got a winter congregation that is here in the winter but gone in the summer. We've got a summer congregation that's here in the summer but gone in the winter. We've got a spring and fall congregation that's gone in the summer and in the winter, but they kind of stop off on the way someplace when they're, when they're traveling, you know, to uh, up north or, or down south. And we've got people who travel on business. We've got people who travel for vacation. I mean, we are a traveling congregation. So if there's, you know, any kind of a subject that this congregation should possibly relate to, it's the one that we have right here as we begin our gospel lesson for today where Jesus is traveling. John 4, verse 3. When the Lord Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, is what it says. Now, had to go kind of makes it sound like either Jesus didn't want to go, oh, man, I have to go, you know, or there was no other option. You know, he he, uh, had to go through Samaria to get from uh, Judea to Galilee. But we know that that's not true because uh, many of the Jews, especially the teachers of the, of, of the law or the rabbis, people like that, who wouldn't want to associate with Samaritans, would go the long way around, which was another way around, more well-traveled route to be able to get between the two. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he went through Samaria. So maybe there's a third option here, and that is that there's some reason, something, some compelling reason why Jesus needed to go there. He had to go through Samaria, and he found himself at a well, a very public place in, a, in the Samaritan town of Sychar. The exact location of that town isn't really well known to scholars, but they believe that it was about 40 miles from Jerusalem, which means that Jesus, who walked everywhere that he went, walked for 40 miles before he reached this town. Okay, Now that, you know, by my recent calculations, and I'm pretty good at math, is farther than it is to my mailbox. I mean, that is a long ways to walk. And he would be tired by the time that he got there. You've been on a long journey, you know, where, where you get to the other end of that journey and, and man, you just need a place to sleep. You need a place to stay. You need a place, a roof over your head. You need some refreshment. You need, you need some downtime. You need, you know, that's Jesus. Now, this last week, some of you are aware that I've had kind of an interesting week. And um, this last week, I, uh, well, my mother's been very ill and uh, she's elderly. Um, and uh, my siblings were supposed to let me know when it would be time for me to come and uh, say my goodbyes to her and things like that. She lives in Minnesota. So they weren't, they weren't saying anything. I called her up one day uh, this last week, and she was delirious. She wasn't making any sense at all. So I said, okay, I don't care what they say or don't say. I'm going. I'm going now. And uh, made arrangements with the rental car company to be able to drive the car to Minnesota from Colorado. That's where I was. I was in, doing continuing education in Colorado. Drove the car uh, to Minnesota to try to see her and uh, say my goodbyes. Um, and made it as far, left early in the morning in the mountains of Colorado, wound up in Clear Lake, Iowa, northern Iowa, and uh, also known uh, for another transportation calamity, Buddy Holly's plane went down in Clear Lake, Iowa. That's, that's where that was. So wound up there, pulled into the Super 8 Motel, uh, uh, where they had a, a nice bed. They, they left the light on for me. Um, or the, no, that's Motel 6, right? Um, 
Super 8 motel, you know, they had a nice bed, um, clean room, worst coffee I've ever had in my life. Kind of looked like that stuff that I just showed the kids up here. I, I think the truckers used it to clean off their mud flaps before they, before they got back on the freeway. Um, and uh, when I got out of the car to go to this motel, man, I, I had been tra- traveling all day long, and I was so tired and so, you know, I don't know, it does something to your body. I could hardly stand up at that point in time. I wound up making it to see my mom in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, praise God, it was uh, of the timing because um, now she's still with us now. She could pass today or in the next several weeks. But I was able to see her on her last day of being interactive. You know, had I not come that day, I would not have done that. But I was able to do that. Uh, at any rate, um, you know, when, when I see about Jesus traveling this long distance and how he wound up in this town, and his condition at that time, I'm thinking of, you know, how I was feeling at that moment. Um, and, and, and he had to be somebody that was looking for a place to stay, uh, looking for some place to find refreshment, looking for some way to renew himself. And we all need that, you know. But where was he going to go? They, they didn't have a Super 8 motel. They didn't have a Motel 6. They didn't have Holiday Inn. They didn't have, um, you know, the uh, Ritz-Carlton. They, they didn't have anything like that. What they did have, they, they had inns uh, in various towns, but the inns really doubled as the uh, town uh, brothel. You know, it was the red light district uh, at the inns. So, you know, most people would be desperate, unless that's what they were seeking out. They would be desperate before they would go and stay there, which kind of gives you a little bit of insight on Mary and Joseph uh, in Bethlehem at you know, the night of Jesus' birth, doesn't it? How desperate that they were that night. Well, here is Jesus in this town. Uh, having walked 40 miles, looking for a place to stay, where would he go? Well, in that day, they had a custom. And the custom was this, that a person would go to the most important place in town, like the city gate or the town square or the well in town. And there they could expect that the uh, good citizens of the town would come out and they would greet the visitors there and they would invite them into their home and they would provide for them a place to stay. It was called hospitality, okay? These days, you know, when we think of hospitality, we think of setting a nice table. Then they would actually take these strangers into their homes and they would provide for them. And they would provide them the roof over their head. They'd give them food. They'd give them refreshment. They, they would do all of these kinds of things. But there was nobody for Jesus except, except this one lone woman who came out of the town seemingly as the lone representative of the town and this lone woman, though, was somebody who was apparently a reject of the people in the town. They didn't want to associate with her. And she's the one who came out, and she didn't offer Jesus anything. Nothing. Now, it turns out, I think, as we see this story unfold, that Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to bring something to these people, bring them an offer of hospitality. And there's, there's a contrast here between this, between the, what he received and what he was offering. The disciples apparently didn't have a whole lot of confidence in the Samaritans to provide hospitality because they weren't even with Jesus. They were off buying bread, buying the very thing that they would have received from the people that they offered this hospitality. Jesus himself came into this world with a message of hospitality. 
the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached, the very same sermon, the exact same sermon that he preached as his very first sermon was the same one he gave to the 72 disciples that he sent out, two by two to the various towns. And it was this, this message. It was, repent, turn around, get real with God, because God's kingdom is here. In other words, now's the time. Here's your invitation. Come on in. Come on into God's house. Because with a king, his house is his kingdom. But in contrast to that, he's, he's got these people who are rejecting him and not giving him hospitality. Now, if he was an earthly king, what an earthly king would do with such injustice as this is they'd probably muster their army and wipe out that town. So what now will the king of heaven do with these people? Well, Jesus did this. He asked for that which was not offered. He asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. John 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That second lesson that we heard today is the Old Testament lesson that describes the backstory of this that uh, the Samaritans are the descendants of those in the northern, or the area of the, where the northern tribes used to be, but are no longer, because the Assyrians exiled them and brought in these other peoples into the land that is the northern part of Israel. And they discovered, hey, we don't know this God of the land. They believed in gods of the land at that point in time, so they tried to figure them out, and we wound up with this kind of twisted, weird, wacko kind of religion that the Jews looked at and said, hey, wait a minute, that, that really is a distortion of what it is that we believe. It's not what we believe. I mean, come on, you're just pretenders. You're just fakers. This is not right. So they rejected the Samaritans. They didn't like the Samaritans. They didn't want to associate with the Samaritans. And maybe the reason why the Samaritans of that town didn't offer any hospitality to Jesus was because they figured that they would be rejected. They'd be told no. But Jesus, Jesus, it turns out, had to go through Samaria. Because he had to bring this offer to this woman and these people of hospitality in God's kingdom. This woman who was uh, representative of the most despised and rejected and least worthy among us, which may be why so often when we talk about this story, we focus on the woman. Because for a lot of us, we can relate to the woman. Right? Deep down, we, we can relate to the woman. And, and maybe, just maybe, if, if Jesus' offer is for her, then maybe it's for me too. You know, maybe I don't need to run from God anymore. Instead, maybe God's grace is for me. John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She doesn't get it. She's intrigued, but she doesn't get it. First, Jesus asks her for hospitality, and then he offers her some hospitality that is even greater than anything that she could possibly offer to him. And the woman, there's no indication even that she even gives him, actually gives him the, drink, the requested drink of water. He may be still standing there thirsty. We have no idea. But he is making this offer to her. And his offer is this, the offer of the running water that is found in the household of God. Come on in. Now, of course, in a discussion of water in a year like this, we cannot we go by without mentioning the word flint. 
And Flint, of course, had its unfortunate day in the sun with bad water coming out of their pipes this past year. And this water is not that water. This water is clean and oxygenated water bubbling out of the ground as a clear spring, tumbling over the rocks and flooding the land around it, irrigating it so that it drinks it in and it invites all those who are thirsty to come. Like in Psalm 63 that says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What the psalmist is saying here is that expressing this longing for God that is satisfied in Jesus, this, this excitement for God, this, this deep desire for God. It's kind of, kind of like, have you, have you ever you know, experienced where you just really are so excited about something that's coming up that you can hardly stand it? I mean, it's like, you know, you're just coming out of your skin. It's, you know, you're a kid and it's Christmas night and Christmas morning is coming up and you know what you're going to get the next morning and it's going to be great. Oh man, it's going to be so great. I mean, you know, you can hardly sleep that night. You know, you're just so excited looking forward to this thing and you're just going to come out of your skin because you know it's going to be this electronic football game with these little guys vibrating on it and it's going to be great and that's what the psalmist says that we need to have for god this excitement for god this thirst for god this hunger for god this that's satisfied in jesus only and jesus says to the woman this is what i offer you verse 13 jesus answered Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty, so I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. The Samaritan woman is looking for ways to make her life easier. And that's the way that a lot of people look at God. They look at God as though his job is just simply this, make my life easier. And if I wind up with problems, if I wind up with difficulties, if things happen that fail my expectations, then God hasn't done his job. Because my expectation is that God is just simply there to make my life easier. But that isn't what Jesus is talking about. What he's saying is raise your bar. Raise it. The Lord delights in... Uh, those times that we bring to him our requests about daily living. He delights in that. But that's not where it ends. That's not the sum total of that. Imagine if Jesus simply said, okay, well, if that's what you want, okay, um, here you go. You got this stream coming out of the, you know, your, your family room at your house. You don't need to come here for water anymore. End of story. She wouldn't have had Jesus. She wouldn't have had the blessing that he had for her. You know, there's so much more that he wants to give to us. And while she may need to keep coming back to this well to get more water, she will never have to come to this well alone again because Jesus is with her. John, verse 16. So he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is... You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, the woman came to this well expecting just simply to draw water. I mean, just a simple task. 
And uh, it seems safe, you know, same, safe, safe thing here, standing here with this rabbi, you know, strange conversation that it was, it seemed to be safe. But now this, how did he know? And what's he going to do about it? When you and I make bad choices, and she made plenty, when we make bad choices, we have another choice to make. And that is this. We can hide from the Lord. We can pretend. We can wear a mask. But that's ridiculous because God knows. Or we can get real with God, one or the other. That's our choice. Jesus' invitation to the woman when he says all of these things is it's time to get real. Or another word for that is repent, which means turn around. Now, in those days, I think they understood that word maybe a little bit more than we did because they had this practice, this civil practice, this civil custom that allowed it to become very concrete for them. It was a slave culture that they lived in, and there were slaves everywhere. Uh, There were all kinds of slaves, you know, uh, from various backgrounds. But very rarely did any of those slaves experience freedom. I think it's pretty safe to say that just about all of them, maybe not all, but just about all of them, longed for this one thing above and beyond all else, freedom. And there was this official civil ceremony called manumission that was the act of setting a slave free. And it, in that act of setting that slave free, is the description of what repentance is all about. And I'm going to turn my back on you here, okay? Because what it was was that they would have in this civil ceremony the slave, represented by me in this case, facing their master and physically turned them around so that they were no longer facing the one to whom they were enslaved. Instead, now they were facing this future without that slavery. And that's what repentance is all about. It's, it's about being turned around away from that to which we were enslaved. In this case, with the woman, it's her past. It's the bad choices. It's the, the things that had you know, kept her imprisoned and prevented her from being able to see the future that is free in Jesus. And Jesus is offering her this new future now, this manumission, this setting free this repentance, this turning around, this getting real with God. But the woman wasn't quite ready for it yet. She wasn't quite ready for it yet, so she tried to change the subject and engage in a little flattery of Jesus. She thought it was anyway. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She goes on to talk about the different practices that are different between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then Jesus responds with these words, yet in verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come, he says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What he's doing and what he's saying is he's turning this world and its norms and and all of the kind of customary things on its head. He's not just simply this little trickle of a spring bubbling up. You ever go to like a, you know, a drinking fountain and the thing is barely coming out? You know, he's not like that. Instead, what he is is a flood, a rushing flood, a flood rush of water, flooding over the land, changing everything. The summer before coming here to serve here, um, I served in Sioux City, Iowa, and there was this big flood on the Missouri River that year. I'd never seen anything like it before or since. And, and uh, the Sioux City sits on the Missouri River. The Missouri is this, just this fast, rushing river. I mean, it's just incredibly fast. And that year, <clears throat> the way the story goes, anyway, is that the Army Corps of Engineers 
uh, after a particularly snowy winter in Montana that dumps all this water into the Missouri Basin, um, they decided that they were going to delay the water from coming down because there was this endangered bird that was nesting below the dam. So they did that, but it built up the water in the dam so high that it became like this bubble in the snake, this, and it was going to be coming down the river. So they warned everybody downstream, hey, get ready, there's a flood coming. And sure enough, there was a flood coming. And uh, that summer I spent you know, doing a lot of sandbagging and things like that for people in their houses. And uh, when this flood came, I mean, it came, and it just changed everything. It was changed the landscape. It, it uprooted trees uh, where you could have driven before. Now it was underwater. You could just see the tops of street signs. And, and as it began to recede, it would drop piles of silt, piles of sand around. It changed everything. If you look uh, satellite image, uh, major rivers like Missouri or Mississippi, you can see where after flooding, sometimes the channel changes. You know, there's this town in, I think, I think it was in Illinois, and it, and it became in Missouri because it's on the Mississippi, and after a particular flood, the channel changed, moved it over to a different state, moved it to the other side of the river. You know, that kind of a thing. This is Jesus. When he comes, he's like this flood rush that changes the landscape, scrubs it clean so that now it is fresh, it is different, it is new, it is fundamentally different than it was before. And he's saying this to this woman, that it's not this little tiny stream coming out. It's a flood rush of living water that is coming, fundamentally transforming who you are. Well, the woman, she's starting to get it. So she thinks, well, maybe I should go here. She suspects there might be more to Jesus than what she at first thought. So she says this in verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Well, just then, timing would have it that the disciples returned with the food. They got brought in the groceries. And uh, the woman goes into town, and she tells her neighbors all about how she uh, is changing her address to God's household and tells them all about it. And in the middle of all of the commotion, all of the rush of everything that's taking place in the story, we can miss this tiny little detail that happens to be there. And when Scripture has these tiny little details, it's important to stand up and pay attention because there's tremendous meaning packed into the tiny little details. And the tiny little detail is this. It says that the woman left her water jar and went into town. She left her water jar. Now, when Jesus first called the disciples... And he said, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What did they leave? Their nets. Okay? Their nets. It was a sign of them leaving behind what was behind and going forward with Jesus. And now this woman is leaving her water jar behind. It's a sign of her leaving behind those things that were the things that had bound her before, the things that had kept her away from Jesus, the thing that had distracted her from Jesus. So the question today is, what's your water jar? What is it? What is it that is distracting you from Jesus? What is it that you need to leave behind in order to be able to experience the full grace of Jesus? Because here's the thing, is that by definition, grace is something that is undeserved. It's unearned. It's not something that we do something for. And yet, the woman demonstrates this, that there is something that we must do in order to experience that grace. And that is to leave our water jar behind to let go. we got to let go. 
Let go of those things that are binding us. Let go of the, that unforgiveness that is there. Let go of those memories that hold us back. Let go of that opinion. Let go of whatever that might be that keeps you from experiencing God's grace. Let go of it and leave it behind so you can experience God's grace. So, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him, get this, to stay with them. And he stayed two days. They did the very thing that they should have done at the very very beginning, which was to offer him hospitality. And here's the thing is that in those days, one thing I didn't tell you about is that, is that in, when there's a teacher, they will only let him in and show him hospitality if they agree with his message. So letting him in is a sign that they have accepted his message and accepted who he is. And what that means is that for us, this salvation thing is about this mutual hospitality where we're invited to change our address and take up residence in God's kingdom, in God's household, but also as a sign of doing that, we are letting him into our life, into our household, into our family, inviting him to stay with us, which is what the Samaritans did. So now, Jesus is standing at a very public place in your life. What will you do about Jesus? What is that water jar that you need to set down and leave behind? Whatever it is, set it down. Experience, breathe in the fresh air of freedom in Jesus and experience His grace and His mercy for you. Amen.